Welcome everybody to this week's episode of the Money Mentors podcast. Today we are brought to you again by Hewison Private Wealth, one of Australia's leading independent wealth management firms. Today, Glenn and I do our first interview. So we have our first guest, who is John Hewison, the founder and chairman of Hewison Private Wealth. Uh, we speak to John about the importance of um, building an independent wealth management business uh, and also the importance of uh, consumers seeking uh, an independent advisor. We talked to John a little bit about his history and why he started the business and some of the key uh, things he would look for or recommend in terms of sitting down with an advisor. Uh, We hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Money Mentors podcast. Um, For many of our listeners out there either looking at getting advice now or in the future, many times Nathan and I have mentioned the importance of seeking independent advice, but we probably haven't expanded too much as to what that actually means and what the implications are in not getting independent advice. So we're very keen this week to have a chat to founder and chairman of Hewison Private Wealth, John Hewison, um, our first guest on, on this podcast, really just to flesh out um, the history of financial services in Australia, where it's gone, where it is now, um, but more importantly, the importance for all of our listeners in seeking um, independent advice. So welcome, John, to the podcast. Thank you, Glenn. Um, just to kick things off, I suppose we're just keen for, perhaps for you to give our listeners a little bit of a background on, on you um, and perhaps also some of the key principles that you had when you set up Hewson Private Wealth um, just over 30 years ago. Sure. Um, well, I came from a, a background of accounting and corporate management and um, came into the uh, financial planning industry in 1985. Um, in those days, it was um, a, just a, a, developing, a developing profession, um, mainly born from the insurance, back, insurance background. Um, and it was uh, very much commission-based and controlled by, by the uh, larger financial institutions and, and um, who, who manufactured the investment products. Um, I must admit, when I first started, it was a bit of a shock to the system. I, I was uh, I came from a, a highly ethical background and um, and found that that financial planners had a had a, a fairly ordinary reputation. So. Um, um, when I started out, I had you know, some specific issues that I wanted to address in terms of um, ethical practice, um, independence, um, education, uh, and um, uh, client commitment. Uh, so all of those things um, uh, sort of started our practice from that from that stage, and um, we also had a had a, a drive to make sure that. We employed top-class people, mentored them through, gave, sponsored their education, uh, so that uh, that our practice had a had a succession into the future beyond beyond when I retire. So it's sort of in a, in a nutshell. And was that, uh, I suppose, looking at um, getting advisors who had higher levels of qualification? Was was that to provide a point of difference, or was it, I suppose, a, a bit of vision to see where the industry was? Where, as you were saying, it was very much born out of that insurance salesman um, background, not so much a professional um, image. Um, so, yeah, so was it more to uh, as a point of difference or did you sort of see that at some point in the future if we really wanted to move into a profession that would have to 
improve the educational standards? Oh, I could see that, that uh, there was going to be a, a huge need for uh, the, the financial planning profession to evolve, having come from an accounting background which evolved from a diploma-based account, accounting um, uh, qualification through the Australian Society of Accountants, then, then morphed into a degree-based CPA qualification uh, with the ASA changing its name to the, to the CPAs. Um, I could see the, the exact same model emerging from financial planning uh, and, the, and the need to increase the, um, the, the level of education and, and, and ethical responsibility. Uh, and early, early from when the, the Financial Planning Association was, was formed in 1990, um, it became quite obvious that, um, that they were going to take that path. They introduced the Certified Financial Planner designation which came from America in 1991, uh, and uh, the writing was on the wall. There's no question about it that there was going to be an uplift in education, um, and so that's the path we followed. And we in introduced our degree-based um, requirement for our firm in uh, 1995. And I suppose just an add-on to the to the professional standards and, and and degree qualification. I suppose one of the key things which we'll be chatting a little bit about today is is um, how clients are charged. Um, I know that from your time when you were when you served as chairman of the FPA, it was something that you were very, um, I suppose, vocal about. Could you perhaps just explain wh where you saw the issues under that commission-based system um, and, and why you were so passionate and vocal about moving the industry to a fee-for-service model? Well, I think it was, was a, a couple of issues. Um, one was that in, in those early days, the, the advice, um, advice profession, well, it wasn't a profession then, it was advice industry was controlled by the manufacturers and that didn't sit well with me. Um, I didn't think that um, it was right that clients were getting a, a advised by people who were be being paid by, by somebody else through the commission system. And the commission system in those days was, was quite horrendous in my view that, um, that there was uh, upfront commission fees of five to six percent paid simply for, for putting somebody's money into a product. I mean, it was just outrageous. Uh, and it got worse and it was um, um, later on that the product manufacturers introduced what are called trail commissions. They were called service commissions in those days and they could be anything from a uh, quarter of a percent to one percent per annum of a client's money. But they were, they, were, they were purely loyalty commissions so that the advisors wouldn't switch the money from one product to another, which is called churning. Um, so this is just another, another um, uh, financial burden on the, on the, on the client and, and most of the time they were never told about it or certainly didn't understand it. So um, well, all these things were, were, were um, a huge concern. And my view always was that, that um, the, the only real relationship is between the client and the advisor and everybody else is just a service provider. Uh, so that shouldn't be tarnished in any way with, um, with conflicted remuneration to the advisor that, that the client should value the advisor's advice and pay them accordingly uh, and everybody else um, should uh, just provide the service at a reasonable price. So thinking about the in importance of independence, how would you define an independent financial planning business and 
why is that so important for the, the end consumer to, to deal with an independent advisor? Well, an independent financial planning business uh, should have no um, conflicted remuneration from any source, whether it be um, in the form of um, commissions or in the form of uh, services provided or, or any other incentives that might be involved because if a client goes and seeks advice from, from a professional, they expect that advice to be purely in their interests and, and what's, what's called a fiduciary duty. A fiduciary duty is um, uh, all profession, professionals have a fiduciary duty to put, themselves, put the clients before themselves uh, and not have any, any conflict in, uh, in uh, the advice that they give. We're talking here about people's lives, people's life savings and their, and their families and all of the things that they work hard to do for themselves over their life and it's, 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 a, it's a very critical piece of advice ongoing through people's lifetimes uh, and it requires somebody who, who is caring and, and devoted to the client. You can't, can't, have, can't have people giving advice who are being remunerated by another organisation and, and, um, and, and uh, uh, pretend that that's non-conflicted because it, it just can't, it is conflicted. Uh, John, you set up Hewson Private Wealth to be, to be owned by its key people. Um, how, do you, how would you put it to people that when they're dealing with an advisor in terms of who they're owned by? And also, it can be tricky for, for people looking to see an advisor when they hear terms like independently owned. Um, yeah, how, would you, how would you kind of recommend people think about these matters when they go to see an advisor? Well, there's a... Um, uh, I mean, independent is independent. Standalone, no, no uh, ownership to an external body that um, that uh, that the uh, the firm owns uh, owns the the business and uh, and isn't reliant on anybody else to provide them with income. Um, I think um, the uh, issue for me uh, about about um, having ownership within the organisation is critically important. I mean, from a client's point of view, uh, or certainly from my point of view, I wanted to make sure that we, um, we had a certain set of standards uh, and that we all practice in the same standards. We developed the culture of the organisation to be focused on the client outcomes and that um, when I get to the point where, where, um, where I'm moving on that, uh, that my uh, colleagues can take the, own the business and take, it and take it forward. I mean, the normal practice in, in the industry is that um, uh, advisors set up an advice firm, they'll get it to a certain extent, then they'll sell it off. And uh, and move on, and I I couldn't I, in all conscience I couldn't do that. Uh, just uh, practice practice one set of standards and then just uh, take the easy way out and flog it off and disappear. I just couldn't do it. So we've we've now got this um, fantastic group of younger advisors and and a, and a whole heap of high standard um, support people uh, who will take the the business forward and maintain the standards and, and um, look after the client's interest. Um, in, in the last, I suppose, 20 years, 15 to 20 years, we, we have seen a lot of consolidation in, in, in the financial services, you know, financial planning industry where I suppose with the growing level of superannuation assets, it, it, it is a, a very attractive area for people to do business in. And I suppose as a result of that, there's been a lot of vertical integration within the wealth management, wealth advice space. So where, where banks or institutions manufacture the product, then they've got an advice team or a 
sales force effectively selling the product with the i suppose the issues inherent within that system do you think that in a lot of ways that vertically integrated financial services model is flawed it can it work or is it always going to be difficult where there'll always be a conflict of interest if you've got a product manufacturer who's also advising in that space um I suppose it, there, there, there are various ways you can um, refer to the definition of vertical integration. I mean, our practice is in some ways vertically integrated in that, in that um, we give the advice, but we also have an ongoing um, management responsibility to the client. Um, but we don't manufacture product. We, we mainly invest in, in direct investments. So, uh, so that takes out the conflict of interest. I mean, the problem is that with the vertical integrated model as it's sort of generally known, is that, um, the, is that there's a different motivation between a professional advisor uh, and somebody who works for a corporation. A professional advisor gets paid an advice fee for giving the advice. Uh, a corporate employed advisor is working for a corporate model and the corporate motivators are, are totally different. So uh, there's profit, and it's purely profit motivation. Um, it's not client good motivation. And there's a there's no way of of trying to say that there's that, that both are the same because they're not. And at the end of the day, I don't believe that you can make money by giving financial advice under a corporate model. Their profit motivator is getting the funds under management and clipping the ticket on the way through, so charging a, a fee on, on managing the money. That's where the real money is, and it's billion, billions of dollars. So the, effectively, the advice part of that equation is not a profit centre for them, so they don't care much about it. Uh, and they're certainly not going to put a lot of money into it, particularly for in terms of compliance and other things, which we've now uh, seen come to the fore with, with some of the um, issues that have been raised in the press. And just on that, is that where perhaps the, for, for the, cons- the average consumer who, who um, is seeking advice, it, quite often it can be very confusing and misleading in that they think the advice is free because you know investment management fees um, are obviously separate to that and then they might go and see an independent advisor who's saying, well, my advice fee is X, which may include you know, portfolio management or, what it, or investment advice or whatever it may be. Is that where the con- it's so confusing for the end consumer? Absolutely, and and uh, it's a it's a great point you raise, Glenn, because going back um, some years, um, it, it was a common catch cry for advisors to say, "Come and take my advice; it'll cost you no more," and simply meaning that they were giving the, the advice and not charging the client, but they were being paid by the um, by the product manufacturer. Um, Anything that's worthwhile, you don't get for nothing. Um, but people get fooled, and there are there are um, uh, um, disclosure requirements that you know sometimes are buried into a seventy-page document, and, and so nobody nobody really understands them. Um, but uh, there there is a lot of confusion, and I, and I think it's starting to clear now that the laws are changed in terms of uh, the acceptance of commissions. Um, so that uh, fee-based advice is becoming more and more um, accepted by the community. 
So if, if a consumer is looking to, to seek advice, what would be some of the advice that you would talk to them about in terms of how, how they might be charged? Uh, w- would your advice just simply be ask a lot of questions, uh, you know, read through any advice they give, give you, read through it in detail? Because we, we all know that some advisors can be a little bit maybe coy with, uh, I won't charge you a, a fee for my advice, but then they'll maybe hand you a document which you know, might have uh, investment fees or, or platform fees or administration fees. So would you, would you give any additional advice to that in terms of just to be really careful um, regarding to know what, what you're paying? Um, yeah, look, absolutely. I, I, think, I think initially the, um, uh, the choice of a financial advisor is, is, the, is the first point of call and, and um, a lot of people take advice from, from uh, family or friends or, or their accountant or lawyer or whatever. Um, and it's always good to get a, get a referral if, if, if you can. If you can't, um, I would uh, certainly encourage people to, um, to uh, use the Financial Planning Association as a resource um, where you know that um, the advisors that belong to that organisation are qualified. They have to practise under a certain set of practising standards and codes of ethics. Um, so it gives a, some sort of a, uh, a standard to, to go on. Um, I think in terms of remuneration, I mean, I, I know that we, look, it's a, financial advice is, is it, it's not investment advice. And a lot of people see financial advice as being purely about investment. It's not about that at all. Financial planning and advice is, is about relationships, it's about life planning, it's about taking into account all of the personal things that are important to people and all of the outcomes that they want to achieve in their lifetime. Um, so a good advisor has to be almost part um, technical advisor part psychologist and understand, um, develop a relationship. So the first point, point, point I'd make is that the um, consumer needs to be comfortable with the person they're talking to and needs to be comf- comfortable in, in the knowledge that that person cares what happens to them uh, and has the, the ability to, um, to uh, take all of those things into account and, and uh, act in their best interests. Um, if you're sitting at the table and you're talking to somebody and you, and you don't connect and you don't think that they're really, really interested in your, in your well-being, go see somebody else. Is it fair to say um, or not that, um, you know, with the financial planning profession, in particular post-GFC, where there was a lot of controversy, we saw a lot of people who were, who were hurt by bad advice, has it been a good thing, the spotlight that has been placed on the financial planning industry? Or... or is it unfair to paint everyone with the same sort of brush? Oh, look, you know, it it really hurts. I mean, I, I know that, that that we practice at a high level of integrity, and uh, when you see some of the horror stories in the press, and and we saw a lot of people that came to saw us after the G, during and after the GFC, um, who had some horrible experiences, and. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the industry, the profession gets tarnished. But on the other hand, um, there was a, um, a high level of fallout um, and that probably forced some, uh, some act- action to be taken by the, um, the regulator and the government. Uh, so we've, we've seen increases in education standards, in- increases in, in accountability, which um, we've been fighting for, for for over 20 years. So it's, it's, it's been a long been a long, hard road, but we're finally getting some uh, 
getting some some proper outcomes from the government. Um, I mean, it's interesting looking at things like the GFC, uh, and that's really where financial planners, good financial planners, justify themselves because that's the time when people really, really need to make some some proper decisions and and uh, and not make um, emotional decisions that are going to hurt them long term. Um, so I know that we we just we just worked so hard to communicate, get people in, explain what was happening, what we were going to do about it, uh, how they were protected and so on and so forth, Where, whereas uh, a lot of planners just wouldn't answer the phone. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really in some ways from, from where we sit, uh, it's an opportunity just to show your worth. I don't want to come across as saying that non-independent ad- advice is bad necessarily. It depends on who perhaps you're dealing with. Um, We've spoken before on this podcast about 80 to 85% of the advice industry is owned by the major banks or institutions. So it is, it is hard for a consumer perhaps to find an independent business. They're few and far between. Um, one of the things I've often thought about for somebody looking to seek advice is they might find an advice company and, and they might be called XYZ Financial Planning, whatever you want to call them. Um, but if they dig a bit deeper, which they might not do, they, they might be owned by... I know, a, a dealer group or something like that. Um, ha, just your, your, I'm interested on your comments on that and then also if we look forward a little bit, do a bit of kind of forecasting into the future, do you think that model will change? Do you think that um, the, the major institutions will, will keep that stranglehold on the advice industry? Um, and also in recent, in recent years, some of the, the major banks, for example, have started selling off um, certain divisions of their business. I'm just interested how you, how you might see that playing out. Oh, I, I think there's a I think there's a, a huge shift towards independence. Um, um, Glenn mentioned before about about people who call themselves independently owned, blah blah blah. There, there's a specific definition of of of, of independent, uh, and and um, you can't call yourself independent legally unless you're absolutely independent. You can't have ownership by an external institution. You can't be receiving uh, payments from an external institution. If it's, it's very clear and concise. Um, but I think, uh, I think all of the, um, the issues that have come to, to play in the last few years, particularly in the banking sector, uh, has forced them to rethink. Um, I think... Um, uh, as, as you mentioned, Nathan, the, the, a, lot of, a lot of the major banks are selling off their, their financial services divisions because um, uh, they're, they're too much of an issue for them. If they're going to be forced to be completely compliant, uh, then that costs money. Do you think we'll see more of that just with the banking and financial services Royal Commission? Do you think that they're just trying to be first to the, to the, to the sort of starting line with that? The banks, that they sort of see the writing on the wall and all the bad press that the banks get, do you think that that's why they're doing it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think there'd be any question about it. Uh, they've, um, they're, they're under attack by, by the regulator and um, uh, we've seen some, some pretty ordinary sort of um, practising habits which the banks have been held accountable for. Um, we probably haven't seen it all, so um, I think they're, they're taking the decision to, to move out of that sector altogether. And in the last few weeks, we've seen the results of... ASIC's um, investigation into, I suppose, the financial advice industry where they've looked at a, a number of institutions, in particular the, the banks, 
um, and and they were obviously well the, the results were in, in some ways um, alarming if, if you're a consumer reading them in that they found that 80% of the products on the firm's approved list were external. So if you looked at that on Facebook, you think, oh, well, that's a good thing. At least they, don't, they haven't just stacked their approved list with all their own products. Um, but the flip side was that although only 20% of the products on their list were internal, that when they went out and actually provided the advice, 68% of clients' funds were invested in the in-house products. So yes, they've got 80% of non-in-house assets, but when the advice was provided, most of that advice was to the in-house. So can they ever get away from that conflict of interest or being able to act in the client's best interest? Do you think that's even possible within a that sort of vertically integrated model? Well, no, because it's a corporate model and uh, they, they're always going to, to um, encourage their um, employees to use, use the... Um, the in-house brand. Um, I mean, it's just that's what uh, corporate corporations do. Um, as I say, if you if you're going to go and buy a car and you walk into a Ford dealer, dealer there's a, a pretty high chance that you're going to walk out only a Ford, and that's that's the same thing as, as the banks. And um, I mean, they have also been shown that there've been incentive payments within the banking system from the tellers referring to their financial planner, and then the financial planner using bank products. They get rewarded for for um, the more bank product that they invest in, and so on. I mean, there's a great web of um, of, of conflict that goes on behind the, behind the scenes. So I suppose just take some take home value, expanding on what Nathan was asking earlier. If you're a listener to this podcast and you're looking at getting advice, whether it's now or at some point in the future, or you know someone who's um, who's looking for some advice, aside from I suppose doing doing the general searches and asking friends and family for referrals once you've got that first meeting and, and you're in front of the advisor what would be sort of the top three or four questions perhaps that you would encourage potential clients of that advisor to ask them uh, i think I'd, i i think you'd want to ask about the company who owns it um, i'd ask the advisor about their education and uh, and their experience, um, and I'd ask them to explain their process of um, of advice on uh, how they go about it and what the process is. Yeah, look, that that's definitely things that no doubt, as far as you know, value for people listening. That they're they're definitely, the, the, I suppose, the the three key things that you I'll, I'll probably endorse those comments and and encourage you all to ask your potential advisor. Um, look, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up there. Obviously, John, thank you for your time today. I hope that um, our, our listeners have got a bit of an insight into, um, firstly, a financial planning business has been in, in practice or in operation for 30 plus years, has always been independent, always been fee-for-service, um, and hopefully the, the rest of the industry moves down, down a similar path. Um, so once again, thank you for your time today, and we look forward to speaking to you all again next week. Thank you, everybody, for listening to today's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, As always, please look at our sponsor's website, www.hewison.com.au. So that's Hewison Private Wealth. Please look at their website. Uh, Please also subscribe and rate the podcast. We'd really appreciate any feedback that you might have. Uh, Also, Hewison Private Wealth being our major sponsor. Also, please look for them on the various social media channels, including Twitter, 
Facebook and LinkedIn. So we love having you again today and please tune in next week.